Hello and welcome to Pod People, the show where three good boys talk about three spooky movies. I'm Matisse Van Rossum and I'm joined in the booth today, as always, by Ben Sheets. Hello, hello. And Eugene Lundeen. Hello there. Great to be back. How's um how's your arm doing, Eugene? Oh well, you know they got it bandaged up, but well, I gotta say they told me to not nod at it or anything, and I told them, well, Doc, it still smells. It still smells like turkey, and I I gave it a little nibble. I had to go back to the hospital, but they gave me this really cool hook as a replacement for right now. Yeah, I've so, noticed that. That's a, a nice yeah, looking hook. I, I don't like how you kind of dug it into the table, though. That's... Well, I was trying to still set up the equipment. I know that I want to make myself useful on this show. and I think... Yeah, we're not going to be able to keep you on the show if you keep uh, messing up my furniture. It's okay, because they told me that if I don't break it, that they'll give me like one of those nice fake plastic hands. But I asked them if they could still put like little hooks on the edges so I could still pick up stuff. Really well. How many times have you gotten your hook stuck, like, in the wall or something? Eh, well, you know, my biggest problem is that I, I toss around a lot in my sleep, so... The doctor did say that my my eye would be fine, that I would be able to see in it again, but... Is it always no. just gonna be white like that? Uh, he, he said that, that we'd have to just let time go by and see what happens to it, but uh, it might be white. And the other one might be completely blood red but i can still see fine and that's another reason i apologize i was having a lot of trouble seeing when i was setting up the equipment so i didn't want to say anything about it but it your eyes oozing a little bit you should oh, okay let me oh, oh wrong hand oh, oh. oh no not okay. the hook oh god oh, oh the hook oh. Okay, guys, I'm gonna. No, it's fine. It's fine. I'm. I'm just gonna clean this up for a little sec. Uh. Uh. Ben, why don't you? Why don't you tell us what's going on in the movie news world right now while I clean up this p- puss and shit? All right. So we have a story about Universal possibly trying to get Guillermo del Toro uh, to be kind of the head of the monsters multiverse that they're trying to do the dark universe we're gonna go back to the 1930s and start that up again this is the weirdest thing to me that the dark universe is even a thing like i I, is it is it just universal's ploy to try to keep up with like the marvel and dc cinematic universes because this is really stupid i i feel like if they didn't interconnect them it would be fine I'm okay with them doing more, you know, old school horror. Like yeah, get some I, get a Frankenstein reboot or something. There have been so many of those though. Yeah. And there have been like there have been like three or four Frankenstein movies in the last decade and none of them have been even noteworthy. Yeah, they've all been bad. Well, that's something we have to consider too back in like the fifties. That monster mash movies of that sort, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, those were, you could say, cinematic universes for their time, and maybe they want to try and relive some of that old action. Hopefully the people... I don't know if I'd really call that a cinematic universe so much as just like a crossover, like Alien vs. Predator or Freddy vs. Jason. Are we going to get an Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman remake? Oh, they could digitally restore Abbott and Costello and we could just have them. They'd be scarier than the monsters. The reason I feel like this is such a misstep 
is because it's once again just them trying to cash in on nostalgia that people have. But these movie monsters that they're trying to reboot are, I don't think, really relevant or scary today. I'll tell you what, though. I'd rather have a horror universe than a superhero I agree, but mega if you're, franchise. But series. if you're going to do like a horror exp- like expanded cinematic universe... Then come up with something new. Come up with new monsters. Yeah. But what if it was all like reimaginings of the originals? Like, for example, well, Shape of Water. I've heard Shape of Water is very much like Creature from the Black Lagoon in yeah, a lot of ways. I, you know, that's definitely true. So, what if it's just like they take these original old movies and reimagine them into a new kind of cinematic universe? That could be cool, potentially. The Shape of the Water does look good, and I love Guillermo del Toro, and it's been getting some some pretty good uh, preliminary reviews, but uh, I'm seeing that he turned down Universal's offer to take control of the Dark Universe. I don't know if maybe they'll try to get him in again, or maybe he'll change his mind. Honestly, I don't even know if, uh, if the Dark Universe is still going to be a thing with... Uh, how bad the mummy did yeah the mummy kind of flopped i do have a a list here of all the uh movies they had planned out and i kind of want to just go through them because they have info about all the ones they'd planned too uh we have the mummy obviously already came out lack of brandon fraser really made that movie bomb i'm gonna just put that out there I think, so I think too. It, it reveals, too, Tom Cruise isn't as bankable as he used to be. Yeah, you can't just have a mummy movie where you replace Brendan Fraser with Tom yeah. Cruise. It just doesn't work. Yeah, sacrilege. And I didn't see that movie because it looked fucking terrible and yeah. seems like it was terrible. But I know that uh, fucking Dr. Jekyll is in it and he's supposed to be like the fucking... Oh, uh, God. He's he's like the Tony Stark of the uh, <laughs> of the Dark Universe. He's gonna assemble the team of all of these monsters. <laughs> I think fight it was against good people. I think was that Russell Crowe in, in probably. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, so the next movie they had planned uh, is supposed to come out on Valentine's Day, twenty nineteen. Uh, is Bride of Frankenstein? How romantic! Wow. They're skipping over Frankenstein and going right to Bride of Frankenstein. That's interesting. Feminism. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, apparently, uh, they were trying to get Angelina Jolie to be Bride of Frankenstein. Oh my god. Uh, and wow, I think she's better than that at this point. I don't know. I think they're also better people that they could find. Like Angelina Jolie's not bad, but is she really even that relevant these days? But okay, after that we have uh the Invisible Man. Johnny Depp is supposed to be the Invisible oh, Man. No! Which I mean, having no, an not... invisible Johnny Depp is probably the most bearable Johnny Depp. But I think his voice is what I want to hear the least. True. Ugh. Does that mean that Johnny Depp is the Claude Rains of our time? Oh, God. The thought of that is terrifying in and of itself. Uh, I'm just imagining, like, all of the awful Johnny Depp's characters put into one as the Invisible Man. It's just it's just Mordecai. But he's invisible. <laughs> it's apparently being written by the guy who wrote Charlie's Angels. <laughs> oh my god! 
I'm uh, seeing okay. they're they're rebooting the Wolfman again. Yep, because that worked the first couple times. Yeah, they they weren't satisfied with uh, Benicio del Toro and Anthony Hopkins. It says it's being written by the guy who wrote Prisoners, though. Weird. Which is uh, that I could strange could be good. I guess. Maybe. How how would they ground the Wolfman though? I don't know, dude. I don't know how they're gonna do any of this shit, honestly. Okay, and then uh, after that we get Dracula Untold Two. Oh, good because that's that's what that movie that's what that movie needed a sequel because everyone remembers the first Dracula Untold. Yeah, I know, I do. What the fuck? (laughs) That's my favorite movie of all time. You guys don't talk shit about Dracula Untold. Van Helsing reboot. Of course. Yeah, they just there's no hype around these movies. How did they? try and figure out this marketing scheme and this schedule and not consider the fact that no one was interested in these movies i think this is a, this is all a mistake yeah this is all such a mistake uh, we have dr jekyll and mr hyde uh, which it says has not been announced yet but you you can't have russell crowe as dr jekyll in the mummy and then not have yeah. a standalone i think they have a note here saying. that uh they claim noah hawley might be attached to it oh my god but it looks like it's just pure speculation yeah that's that seems like fakeness yeah oh uh, good phantom of the opera again i'm yeah. sure that will do well you know the thing is that it will probably do well if they do it because there's so many people that are super into musicals. Yeah, but you know if they do the Phantom of the Opera for the Dark Universe, it's not gonna be a musical. It's gonna be gritty and serious, and none of the people who like the musical Oof. are gonna enjoy that. No, they're gonna just make it like Sweeney Todd or some shit. Like yeah. That. Oh man. And then, when they, and then when they finally do the Avengers of the Dark Universe, the Phantom just keeps singing at inappropriate. <laughs> breaking out into song and all of the other monsters are just like dude this is not the time for that yeah he doesn't that no that's a great that's a great idea actually he is incapable of expressing himself in any format other than song he sings all of his lines (laughs) and then after that we have uh the creature from the black lagoon which i mean shape of water might be that essentially Without the heavy-handed connectedness. Finally, out of left field, uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, shit. <laughs> what the fuck? You know, you know, uh, handicapped people, people that look different from you. Obviously yeah, that's, monsters. That's definitely going to go over well in, <laughs> yeah, ooh, in ooh. this day and age. People yeah. are really going to love to see uh, somebody with a physical deformity being labeled a monster. That's going to that's gonna be great. Fuck, dude. Movies were a mistake. <laughs> For <laughs> what, real. What the, fuck, what the fuck are we doing? This, so this is going to bomb for sure. All of these movies are going to bomb. Yeah. There's no fucking way. And especially because Guillermo del Toro doesn't want to work on them. Is there a way you could do these right, though? Do you think? Because I think there's a possibility. Yes, I guess. My instinct would be to say no, fuck no. But if Guillermo del Toro was working on it, then maybe. I think there's two ways you could go about it to make it fun and good. 
you could either make them all very campy and schlocky I think that and is dumb the way to fun do and have them, you know, somewhat self-aware and still interconnected. Uh, but, but the problem is, is both sides have been played already with the Marvel and DC movies. It's either campy, goofy self-awareness or it's dark and gritty fucking pseudo existentialist yeah i mean well, dc has proven that dark and gritty doesn't, doesn't work, work. Yeah. no and i think i think with these specific like old monsters from the 30s i think the only way to do it successfully is play up the campiness because nobody's scared by mummies or vampires or wolfmen or invisible people like that's been done everybody's used to it so if they're going to remake it, you got to schlock it up, I think. I think that's the only choice you have. Yeah, but then yeah. we're going to get some dumb shit like the Wolfman and Seth Rogen fucking teaming <laughs> up. And- I, would, I would rather... I would love that. I would uh, rather sit in these movies and laugh than... Wolfman played by Danny McBride. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yes, dude. That's what I want. Okay, okay yeah. all No, right, I right, want right, that. Yeah. Wolfman played by Danny McBride. <laughs> fucking The Hunchback played by... By Seth Rogen. <laughs> All right. I was well, say Jonah Hill. Oh, no, that's even better. Jonah Hill could be Van Helsing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, has a lot of that has legs. Oh, that's great. I feel like you have to make the Van Hel- Helsing character the least Van Helsing person, though. Well, right, Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill would be good. Only if it was, like, fat Jonah Hill, though. Well, right, yeah, not, like, skinny, serious actor Jonah Hill. Like, <laughs> like uh, super bad Jonah Hill. Yeah. Or Wolf of Wall Street Jonah Hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, be, I, I love this. Yeah. Very yeah, funny. Is this the future that we want? For the this is very, this is very good. Universal, take notes. We've, we've done half your job for you. We've cast all of your movies. In fact, you know, let's, let's just make all of the cinematic universes, like, connected here. Oh, yeah. I want to see Dark Universe versus the Avengers. <laughs> I, yeah, let's... Movies uh, were a mistake. Movies were a mistake. And on that note, let's talk about some movies. So uh, our theme for this week is our, uh, our first director retrospective. We're going to be talking about the films of Mike Flanagan, who uh, has had such breakout hits as Oculus and Hush, and most recently, uh, the Netflix original Gerald's Game, based on the novel by Stephen King. So we're going to be talking about his first film, Absentia, and then Oculus, and we'll close out with Gerald's Game. Mike Flanagan is a director who has a, a special place in my heart because uh, all but two of his movies, Absentia and Ouija, were filmed in my hometown of Fairhope, Alabama. A lot of horror movies being filmed in Fairhope. Yeah, Get Out this year uh, was was shot there, so uh, it's uh, it's blowing up. And I have some friends who uh, do special effects who have worked on all of these movies. So I, I think Mike Flanagan is a director with a lot of promise. He's had some some misses, I think, but uh, I think more successes than anything else. But with that, let's uh, let's jump into Absentia, his first film. Yeah, so Absentia was made around 2011, mm-hmm. I believe, and it was a Kickstarter project. This was made back when he had a couple award-winning student films, and this was shot in California as opposed to all the other movies he had Shot mm-hmm. in Fairhope. It's about two sisters, Callie and Trisha. Callie, recovering drug addict, is moving in with Trisha, who 
has uh, lost her husband, has been missing for the past seven years. It follows her mostly coping with that situation, trying to move past it. But she's uh, she's preparing to she's going through the process of declaring him dead in absentia. Yes, dead in yeah. absentia. So there is where the movie title comes in. Trisha is seven months pregnant and. Callie runs into this man in rags. He's all dirtied up. He he looks like he's been through a rough time. Very homeless. Yes, very, very homeless, homeless. Severe homelessness, this man. Who is also played by Doug Jones, which I uh, I hope this isn't a spoiler or anything, but he is not in any sort of special effects. He is just regular old Doug Jones. Well, in, in in bum makeup. In bum makeup, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Very homeless. Yeah, certainly no eyes on his hands or anything like that. From there on... Very strange things begin to happen in the house and around her, and they all seem to be linked to this tunnel near her home. I think as a first feature film, it lacks in a couple places. I think, Matisse, if you want to try and explain a little bit of what you think, we can uh, jump off from there. All right, well... I think this movie has a lot of potential, and I'll go ahead and get get it right out there. I don't think this is a bad film. It definitely takes some some interesting missteps that sort of hurt it, and uh, I think, and this is one of the only times I'll ever say this, because I don't think a big budget is necessary to making a good film, but I think the low budget really hurt this movie. I think I don't know if I agree. I don't know if to it, but keep going. And I think that's just that Mike Flanagan's concept for this uh, sort of goes beyond the the budget that he he was working with. To fill in a little more of the gaps, uh, Trisha begins having these uh, very intense, lucid dreams where. her husband, in some sort of ghostly form, keeps appearing to her and making scary faces and shouting. And her her shrink tells her that, oh, this is just because she's she's coping with having to uh, declare him dead finally, but she thinks that there might be something else going on. At the start, it feels a lot like a sort of generic ghost movie, but... It takes uh, a sharp left turn uh, in the third act. Trisha's husband actually shows back up, and he is emaciated and malnourished, and they find animal bones in his stomach, and he won't talk about where he's been or what's happened to him, but he is seeming to be in a great state of fear all the time, constantly looking over his shoulder like something is coming for him. We learn that the tunnel is home to basically a troll. I'm just going to throw that out there. It's basically a troll. Well, we can't <laughs> say because we never see any sort of creature. Well, we no, like that's that. true. We never see what it actually looks like. But there's the scene where her husband is reading uh, the three Billy Goats gruff. And he's talking about how it doesn't look anything like that. It looks more like an insect. So there's some big insect monster that lives like inside the walls of the tunnel. 
and if you trade with it, i.e. leave trinkets by the the tunnel, then it will start to trade things with you, and eventually it will come kidnap you and take you into some dark, evil realm under the tunnel and does stuff to you we never really find that out that's that's the thing like none of this shit starts happening until like the last 30 minutes of yeah, the movie yeah that's true conceptually it's 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 fresh it's interesting it's original but we it, it, none of it ever gets fleshed out at all yeah that's the problem i had with it you know i don't think it was the budget necessarily that did it i think it was that they were trying to do too much with it I well, think if yes. they just stuck to, like, the Lovecraftian type of tunnel monster, unseeable entity that, like, takes people and puts them into the madness inside of the walls, that's awesome. That's really good. But then they tried to, you know, muddy the water yeah. with, like, ghosty type of stuff, and, like, you kind of see the creature at points, but, you know, the budget definitely wasn't enough to do that stuff well. I feel like if they would have just played that completely subtly, it would have worked. And if they had started better. playing, if they'd started playing that earlier in the movie, and it's never explained either why the people who are being, like, targeted by this creature, like, see these apparitions of their loved ones who have gone missing... She was having, like, she was seeing her husband in dreams. Like, he wasn't actually there. And then somehow he managed to escape, and he came home, and then the the monster came back to get him. That's one of those things where it's frustratingly ambiguous. Not not ambiguous in a good way. There's a lot of plot holes in this movie, I think. One problem that I had with the movie is that because... This was uh, something that he did after all of these student films, that it doesn't seem to really escape that. Uh, A lot of the things feel very flat Mm -hmm. with the filmmaking, just nothing very interesting in terms of visuals. And also that it just feels like a bunch of -of out-of-work actors that they found around California to play all these characters. I never really felt anyone did a... Did a convincing job. Besides Doug Jones, who I thought was Right, great, because but, Doug, Doug Jones is the But he's only barely, real, he's yeah. barely in it. Yes. Um, I will agree with you, and then I will disagree with you on two different things. I definitely agree that it felt a lot like a student film. Like, while I was watching it, I'm like, this looks good for a student film, but bad for, like, a professional film, if you know what I mean. Flatness is is a great way to describe a lot of it. The lighting, the shot composition, and for some reason, he put, like, a vignette, like, at the corners of everything. That was very confusing Throughout, like, to the me. whole movie. But the whole movie, it's, like, vignetted, and that did not make any sense to me whatsoever. But what I will disagree with you on... I didn't find the acting offensively bad. Uh, Doug Jones was definitely the best for the little bit that he's in there. But I think there are few and far between, but there are several moments in the movie that I found genuinely quite effective in terms of the characters. And I think that that's one good thing about this movie is that we get plenty of character development. Not so much story development, but you definitely get to know the characters and they feel like 
they feel three-dimensional, you know? Yeah, I would agree somewhat. Especially I mean, with, like, Trisha's whole uh, conflict, you know, with having to declare her husband dead after all of these years without knowing anything about what happened to him, yet while simultaneously trying to move on and she's having that fling with the detective who's been uh, searching for her husband. And I don't know if they ever say it flat out, but it's implied that he's the father of her child yeah, that she's yeah, pregnant yeah. with. And the stuff with uh, Callie and her struggling with her drug addiction and how she ends up relapsing when shit goes bad and she's trying to be there for her sister, but at the same time also is struggling with her own demons and has difficulty balancing the two. I think that stuff is yeah. pretty solid. Well, there's certainly no issue with the characters themselves. I just don't find the actors behind them did a very good job. I think it's hit and miss. I, I There were several moments that I was actually quite impressed with. My whole sense of this movie is just hit or miss all around. When it's good, it's good. When it's bad, it's bad. And it flip-flops between those Yeah, those it could have used a lot more consistency to yes. it, for sure. And I feel like if they would have played with less, especially with what they were trying to do with the, the tunnel stuff, I mm -hmm. think it would have been more effective because it would have streamlined it a little bit more. And I did think that the scene where Callie comes across uh, Doug Jones in the tunnel is actually pretty good. Maybe one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah, because yeah, it's, 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 it's really good. It's pretty genuinely creepy, you know? Like, because when she comes across him, he's, like, sprawled out across the tunnel, and he looks like he's dead. And she's she's having that moment where she's like, oh, God, there's this homeless person in the road. I'm going to have to, like, step over him. Like, can I do it without him noticing me? Oh, fuck, no, now he noticed me. And he keeps begging for help, and she assumes that, he just wants money or food because he's homeless. But really, he's escaped from this silverfish, Lovecraftian nightmare monster and actually needs help. So I, I thought that stuff is really good, too. But then it just sort of falls apart again and then builds itself back up. And I think you're you're right, Ben, that if they really wanted to make this movie way better, ditch all of like the weird ghost shit that happens in like the first 45 minutes and from very early on imply that there's something living in the tunnel yeah. and focus on that and flesh that out instead of throwing all that shit in in the last 30 minutes and trying to explain it. I don't know. I think they could have expanded uh, Doug Jones' son's character yeah. more. We get him a little bit. He leaves like a like a plastic bag with a little puppy in it Well, yeah, that's the wall. We find that out at the end, but when we first see him is when Callie goes back to leave food for Doug Jones... And he shows up and he's got this garbage bag and he's like, don't leave that there. And she's like, why? He's like, just don't do it. And then he sets down the bag and then walks away. I thought that was interesting, too, because that's when she like trades with the creature for the first time and she gets on its radar and then it just leaves her like a pile of like coins and trinkets. Yeah. Which I thought that was really fucking funny, actually. I couldn't take that too seriously. But I feel like if you would have expanded his story a little bit more, if we got a few more glimpses of what was going on there, mm -hmm. it would have felt 
a little better than how it is now where it, you know they they try to explain away the killings or disappearances on him because he had dead animals and stuff right that he's a he's a, a scapegoat sort yeah. of what did you guys think about the the climax of the film when uh the the creature comes and takes Trisha and then Callie goes to try to trade her life for Trisha's. I thought that, that the climax is actually extremely anticlimactic. I think one problem I'd never really felt we got a full grasp on what this creature wanted. Exactly. Or what it could do. And so it's just it's so underdeveloped that you never really feel the tension or the force behind it because well it kinda just does whatever it wants. Because if you do trade with it and it gives you stuff, but other times you will trade with it and it doesn't do anything, you just die, then it doesn't... No, I agree. Its motivations are not clear, and while I normally don't have a problem with ambiguity, I have a hard time caring if there's not something offered. All we know is that it takes people into a nightmare realm where it presumably tortures them for some reason that's never really specified. I like that it kept some of that unknown. I, I think felt very some Lovecraftian of it. in how it did it. But I I agree that like they shouldn't have started to set up rules for it mm-hmm. if they weren't going to go all the way. They should have either left it completely open and unknowable without trinkets or trading right or you know gone into it a little bit more right and i i think at that point when kelly goes to try to trade her life for trisha's i was expecting something more than what we got and i think this is a part where the budget definitely comes into it because all we have is her going into the tunnel and she keeps shouting trade and then you hear the thing moving around in the walls and then it just gives her fucking uh Trisha's unborn baby it just like rips the baby out and like leaves it in the tunnel which we don't see at all we just sort of see an out of focus like dead fetus in the background and then Callie starts to run and then she disappears and that's supposed to be like the climax like it's really short it's not particularly exciting. That just did not do really anything for me. Conceptually, I think it was fine, but the way it was executed, like that part was over, and then we get a little bit of a wrap-up, and then the movie's over, and I, I don't know. I was just really I was just really underwhelmed by all of that. Right, it just it, it feels very ineffective. I mean, you have the ghost story in the beginning and sort of this extension of the grief or what the main character is going through with the husband showing up in ghost form it does not just happen in the dreams she also sees him uh in closets around corners so something that lurks around her and then you add in the creature in the tunnel which these two things clash and both of them Mm -hmm. don't really go anywhere to talk briefly about the the ghost husband stuff, I what I did appreciate about some of it at least was that when she was like seeing him in her waking life, 
they didn't do that as like just a bunch of obnoxious jump scares with loud noises. He was just kind of there in some shots. Right. And like they were doing a lot of like the generic like creepy ghost thing where like the pale face and the eyes rolled back in the head and the wide open mouth. At least they didn't like just have him like cut to that and then like loud noise like you're supposed to jump the only time they really did that is like the first time she sees him uh downstairs right she she's closing a door and the ghost is hiding right behind the door and he shouts something really fast after oh yeah there was that i i i actually was not referring to that but i forgot about that yeah and they did like the distorted voice like you know what you did (laughs) something like that i that was really really fucking stupid it was silly It, it was funnier more than it was uh effectively scary or anything like that yeah yeah overall this movie just if it were not done by mike flanagan with everything he's done at this point now it would honestly feel like something i'd catch on like a midnight movie dvd or i think i think what is so frustrating about it for me is that the is the clear potential that it has that when it is working, it feels really good, and then it just lets you down. The The potential is so strong, I think, that this could have been a really, really great movie, but the way that it lets you down just makes it all the more frustrating because of that. I think we've said all we really can say about this movie. Just to get into ratings, for me, this has moments that show that Mike Flanagan did have a lot of ideas behind this film. Certainly, it may be overstuffed. There was potential, and certainly it is a good thing that he was eventually recognized for the things he did in this film. For me, I think this is about a a two-and-a-half pod film that it's something if you want to understand Mike Flanagan as a director more, but I don't think it offers much else. Yeah. Well, it obviously caught somebody's eye in the right way that it allowed him to go on to make some of his more successful films you know it obviously that potential was spotted by somebody which is good because if they had just chosen to write this off much better movies like oculus and hush might have never been made you know or funded i i think that for for the potential that it exhibits and for the good parts i'm gonna give it three out of five not a terrible movie i would probably watch it again at some point but it it's just kind of boring at times i think i mean this movie had a lot of potential and i really like some of the conceptual things it was doing with the insanity and the wall monster but i have to agree with you guys like it could have been done so much better and i feel like it was trying to do too much and if it would have streamlined the storyline and focused it a little bit more, it would have been a much more effective movie as a whole. Um, so I would give this a three out of five as well. It's worth checking out, especially if you like Oculus or Hush or any of other the other uh, Mike Flanagan movies. But uh, it's not the first one you should watch. Definitely. And uh, that gives us a solid rating of 2.8 pods for Absentia. And with that, we will transition into Oculus. Oculus is a 2013 film, the first film uh, that Mike Flanagan shot in Fairhope. Um, This is his second film. 
right after Absentia. And it is based on a short film that he did uh, prior to Absentia called Oculus Chapter 3, The Man with a Plan, um, <laughs> which is a, an interesting title for a short film. But uh, I, I have not seen that short film, so I don't know how it is. But apparently it won some awards and uh, enabled um, him to get his Kickstarter for Absentia going. So uh, Oculus is about some sort of malevolent entity that lives in this giant uh, mirror that seems to feed on living energy and basically kills people by making them go crazy and uh, killing themselves in some form or another, and then they become a part of the mirror. What did you guys think of this movie? Well, certainly it is a big step up from Absentia. It does show that Mike Flanagan, when given a budget, can still make a movie that can be entertaining and effective it has a lot in terms of playing around with the mind or the state of these characters because as they try and uh, document this mirror because the sister wants proof that there was a spirit within it and their parents were not just crazy constantly the mirror is playing tricks on them showing them things that aren't actually there, causing them to do things they don't remember doing themselves, moving cameras around of those sorts, bringing them into their childhood memories, which very skillfully is interwoven between the present. Because one thing we did not mention, Mike Flanagan has edited all of his movies that he has directed since Absentia. Yeah, which I think is really cool, and I think definitely the strongest thing about this movie is how, as it goes on, it really, really well interweaves the past and the present. It's almost like they're happening simultaneously. Yeah, the fluidity between the two storylines is great. Uh, Sometimes you even take a single shot between the two. You know, you'd Mm -hmm. have, like, the young people in a shot and you'd pan over and then it would be the 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 older versions of them yeah or something like that or you would combine both of them in the same shot he he does a great job of you know combining the two storylines so it feels organic and doesn't feel forced he's a very solid editor absolutely i i really like this movie i i feel like it took a lot of the concepts and ideas of Absentia and developed them further mm-hmm. and streamlined it like I was wanting from Absentia. Yes. Um, because there's a lot of similarities between the two. You know, you have that unseeable evil, um, whether it's the tunnel in Absentia or the mirror in this movie. You have the uh, sibling relationship where one has just gotten out of uh, some sort of medical care. Um, Well, yeah, that's another thing that I think is really cool, is that the brother who was put in the insane asylum has been, uh, after all of this time in the asylum, has been convinced that everything that happened when they were kids was was him losing his mind or them uh, trying to cope with their father... Uh, imprisoning and killing their mother and so that they have sort of projected that as a supernatural entity. He is sort of the straight man for a while to the sister's uh, more uh, more eccentric character. She remembers everything and so she has set up this elaborate plan 
to document the uh, the the force within the mirror and then to destroy it so she can exonerate her brother for the murder of uh, their parents. So I think that that's really cool where it's not just both of them trying to work together against this entity. It's also her having to reconvince her brother that all of this shit actually happened and that it wasn't just all in their heads, you know? Which is something that I... Uh, like in horror movies when they try and do it, is to create doubt in what is true or what is false, if yes. the spirit is actually there, or if they are the delusions of this mentally unstable family. You could say that the brother and sister could just be hallucinating, just like their parents may have just gone crazy, and so they try and lay out enough backstory with the family and what happened that it does create that sense of that the other way could make just as much sense as an actual spirit in the mirror. And in terms of the mirror itself, I I like the ambiguity. In this case, I, I really enjoy the ambiguity as opposed to an absentia where you don't know if it's like a spirit or something that's living in the mirror or if it's the mirror itself what it really does to these people it just causes them to hallucinate and then they eventually die in some way like uh at one point the sister uh Kaylee is um like reading th- the history of the mirror uh, that's called yes, the, in a gigantic exposition dump. In a, yes, is, in a in a yeah. big old exposition. Justify dump. through her recording of the mirror. She has yes. a whole bunch of cameras set up, yes. trying to document it every which way. Yes, and I think that that's a good way to do it. To not just have the exposition, but to have a reason for it. She's setting this whole thing up as like uh, as an experiment that she's documenting. So she's explaining everything to the camera camera as she goes along and we learn that this mirror like everybody who's ever owned it has died in some mysterious way like a like a woman who died of dehydration while sitting in a tub full of water stuff like that it gives you just enough detail to make you interested and to make you buy it but without over explaining it it's become an obsession for her. Like, she definitely has a, a, a mania about her. Like, she has to she has to prove this right. Like, she has to make people think that she and her brother aren't crazy. And I think that she does that really well. She's played by Karen Gillan of Doctor Who fame. I think she does a, a pretty damn good job, honestly. Yeah. I think nope. the, the acting is all around pretty solid. Uh, I think the the... The least impressive acting comes from um, Brenton Thwaites, who plays the the present version of the brother. I think he's uh, not not bad, but just kind of underwhelming. Right, and he's been in a lot of very weird movies. He's been in Gods of Egypt and oh. Maleficent. Oh, he plays a very generic, like pretty boy uh, kid. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, he's the, he's the straight man to her more uh, obsessive character, you know. So they play off each other pretty well, and uh, the parents too, I think, uh, do a really good job. Uh, the mom's played by Katie Sackhoff, who I think is in Battlestar Galactica. Sounds right. I think that's uh, that's 
where she's famous from, and uh, The Father is by Rory Cochran. Rory Cochran, yes, from Argo. He's been in Scanner Darkly, Dazed and Confused as well. He plays the the big pothead hippie dude in that film. Yeah, I thought right. he did a good job, and the kids are surprisingly good yes, too. Yes, no, great. Especially, especially the young Kaylee, played by uh, Annalise Basso. Basso? Basso? I think she she does a really good job. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you want to know one funny thing? I, uh, so they they emphasize throughout the movie how you can't like damage the mirror or it'll like fight back. Like it won't let you. Yeah. yeah. When she's taking the mirror home in present day, you see through the window them like packing it into the back of the truck, and they're just like throwing it back there, like I they don't really that care that much. Maybe maybe the mirror didn't want to fight back until it was uh, in in a place where it could where it could do that. Yeah, that would be funny. That would be funny as shit if it just like started attacking these just like moving guys who were moving it. <laughs> They pack it into the back of the van and then just lie down in front of the van. (laughs) (laughs) Just lie down behind the back tires and just let somebody run them over. That'd be funny as shit. Um, No, the the movie plays with the mirror really, really well for the most part. Uh, The mirror's kind of a troll. Yes. It feeds the the people hallucinating random objects, whether it's uh, light bulbs or plates. Yeah, um, like that that's a really great scene when uh Karen Gillan picks up an apple and bites into it and then sh- we see that she was biting into a light bulb instead. But then it turns out she wasn't biting into a light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the mirror is definitely a troll. I I it feels like a good villain, the mirror. In the same way that the tunnel in Absentia had the potential to be a good villain, the way it had you guessing what was real and what wasn't really worked yes, to its advantage. By, yeah, because by the end of the movie, y- you really are questioning everything, like w- the reality of anything that's happening. Well, yeah, especially when uh, Karen Gillan's character, I can't remember. Kaylee. Yeah, Kaylee. Uh, especially when Kaylee sees her like boyfriend come in the house and she like stabs him. Oh yeah, but she's not sure if it's reality or just the mirror playing tricks on her. Ultimately, it's still kind of ambiguous. I think she did actually. Yeah, because they show yeah. that because um, she, like, she thinks she's holding a plate. Which earlier in the film we see in their childhood, their mother was chained up by their dad and was eating pl- pieces of plate. And so she sees one of those, stabs her boyfriend, thinks that it's all hallucination because of that, but it ends up being a vase that she kicked because the mirror apparently kills plants that are around. And so Right, well, yeah. it, it feeds on uh, living energy, so uh, the, the plants always die around it first. And I also think the way that they uh portray the parents descent into madness is really good where the kids are like playing outside and they look in their uh the window of their dad's office and see like this other woman in there and then ask him about it at the dinner table so then the mom thinks that he's having an affair so that sort of like starts to make her go crazy whereas 
the mirror is exerting its influence directly on the dad, so he's going crazy for that reason. I wish they would have fleshed out the mother's insanity a little bit more. Because they make one point to it when she's looking at her C-section scar and it starts to rot and yeah. um, bleed. And so you could say that that's part of the manifestation of her stresses with the family and her children now because her marriage seems to be falling apart. Right, and she and how she feels like because of that, like she's not pretty anymore. You know, that's why her husband is cheating on her. So yeah, I think that's uh, that's one thing that Mike Flanagan does really well is uh, is physical manifestations of. Uh, like internal conditions, you know, Absolutely. The, the state of the yeah. mind. I think that's every one of his movies. He does. I that think that's well. yeah one of one of his really really strong suits. Well, let's talk about uh, the the climax of this movie. Yes, this is when it really begins to show more of what happened to them in their childhood, because then we get to see what exactly led to that moment when the mother and father were killed. Right, and I really like that because it's not, we don't just learn about the past through, like, one big flashback. At a certain point, like, the climax of what happened when they were kids is happening at the same time now, you know? Mike Flanagan is really good at editing that together to make it feel fluid. At the end, Karen Gillan has a, a kill switch for the mirror setup. It's a it's an an- a boat anchor on a pendulum with weights suspended from the ceiling, and if they don't reset a timer every hour, it'll swing down into the mirror. And at a certain point, the mirror defends itself by making uh, Karen Gillan stand right in front of it. And her brother does not see her there. And he tries to kill the mirror by setting off the kill switch. And the anchor swings down into Karen back of Karen Gillan's head and kills her. I thought that was... Uh, a really great moment. This is like the third time I've seen this movie, but the first time I saw that, that was, uh, I thought that was a very, very effective scene. So then when the cops show up once again, it appears like the brother has killed his family. Yet again, the mirror is the master troll, just (laughs) putting this helpless brother into, into jail yet again, man. One of my gr- actual greatest regrets in life is that I had an opportunity to get on the set of this movie because I was fresh out of high school when it was being filmed and uh, it was actually like four or five houses down from my friend Justin's house. So and I and I knew people who were working on it. The, the guys who designed the mirror and built the mirror um, were friends of mine and they offered me a chance to come on set and my fucking job would not give me off. And so I had to go to work and honestly that job was fucking terrible. And I should have just quit. Then I was like, I should have been like, I have an opportunity to be on a movie set. I want to make movies. This is my thing. Like, fuck you guys. Instead. I, I let that slip past me and I, I regret it greatly because it would have been super cool to be on the set of this movie. That is a damn shame, especially I did, with it being in hometown and all I, that. I did, <clears throat> through my friends, get commissioned to make some uh, some foam board uh, anchor heads that they were going to use for like props for when the thing hit Karen Gillan, but they did never end up using those, oh, so no. I made them for nothing. Oh, oh well. One thing I want to ask you guys about 
some of the moments in this movie are you see like apparitions of the the people the mirror has killed in the past mm-hmm. especially towards the climax was that really necessary seeing them i think it's necessary only to uh imply that the mirror basically like absorbs these people into themselves like how at the end when it cuts back and forth between the young boy and the adult brother being put into the back of a cop car and both times he looks back to the house and the first time he sees the apparitions of both of his parents standing in the window and the second time his sister has joined them and i like that but i I think that that would have been way out of left field if they hadn't included the apparitions previously. And also they needed to do it to establish that there was the mysterious woman in dad's office, you know, that makes the mom start to go crazy because she thinks he's cheating on her. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the implication of you know maybe we didn't it. maybe we didn't need to see quite so I, much yeah of them. i think they overused them a little bit i like the the shot where you see all of them like surrounding the mm-hmm. two right by the mirror i thought that was really effective yeah but other times you know they just kind of appear for kind of certain times they're horror. not quite necessary um what i did think was cool at least about the design of those ghosts is the like the the mirrored contacts so their eyes are reflective like the mirror i thought that was a pretty cool touch i did get to meet the the makeup artist for that movie that was one thing i did get to do i think he also did a lot of the makeup on the walking dead or at least the first few seasons so uh that was very cool um but yeah i i agree with you that sometimes they didn't feel quite necessary that they seemed to just sort of be like moments for jump scares like ah there's a ghost there yeah. But at certain times it was really effective. Yeah. I thought it it cheapened some of the horror a little bit because yeah. I, I think can, I can agree with that. The subtlety is one of the things that makes this movie work best. Yes, I agree. Oh, uh before we wrap uh, up Oculus, I do want to mention the score. I think the score is really good in this movie. It's very simple and it's very minimal, which is why I like it so much. But anytime there's stuff with the mirror, there's just like that really deep strobing bass note that I think is really like atmospheric and cool. But I like the minimalism of it a lot. I think it was really effective. I think the editing and the uh, art design and the music are definitely like the the highlights of this movie shout out to the boys at bruce larson arts for making that cool ass mirror <laughs> all right let's uh jump into ratings so um i guess i'll start uh i think this movie was really solid um really worth checking out especially if you're looking for a smart horror movie uh contemporary horror movie it's one of the best in the recent decade um, sure. there's minor flaws in it. You know, I, I feel like they could have done a little less with the, the ghosts and, uh, but I love, I love the fluidity of the time having you guess what's real and what wasn't was very, very effective. So I'd give this movie a solid four out of five pods. 
yeah, I no, I think you summed that up really well. Good movie, not perfect, but uh, very enjoyable to watch. Definitely worth seeing. Definitely put Mike Flanagan on the map, like for real, at least on my map. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll echo that exactly. Four out of five. I will have to agree that this is overall uh, an entertaining movie. I think this is a good time, definitely, watching. Yeah. So four out of five for me. Awesome. So four across the board. I uh, I think the only last thing I need to say is this movie is cerebral without being patronizing. Yes. Which I think is something that it does very well and that most uh, cerebral movies don't do. They They come across as patronizing. Yeah, they it, it's smart without being pretentious. Talky, you know, and talky, they're yeah. not like just spouting out philosophical bullshit at you. Right. I I also want to mention uh WWE. Oh yeah, WWE distributed this movie. movie. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Let's go uh, Vince. Okay. Maybe maybe the only good movie that WWE has ever produced or distributed. I I heard that in the original draft of the screenplay, uh, Bill Goldberg was supposed to play the mirror, but yeah, he, I uh, think I had I scheduling think I conflicts. And uh, and Karen Gillan, uh, young Karen Gillan, was supposed to be played by Kane. <laughs> Kane! Uh-huh. All right, so we're jumping three movies in between Oculus and Gerald's Game. So, Ben, why don't you talk to us a little bit about Gerald's Game? Sure. Uh, Gerald's Game is a Netflix movie uh, this year, 2017. Um, it's a uh, about a woman named Jessie. Uh, she goes on a little bit of a retreat with her husband, Gerald, out to uh, the countryside, uh, far from uh, civilization, and uh, they go out to try to spice up their sex life a little bit. Um, So Gerald attaches her to the bedpost with handcuffs to try to spice things up a little bit. She gets kind of creeped out about how rapey he gets, um, he gets very rapey. Yeah, he gets very rapey with it. But right before he relents and take the handcuffs off her, he has a heart attack and collapses on top of her. She's freaked out because obviously she's handcuffed uh, with a dead body on top of her um, in the middle of nowhere, essentially. And so she pushes him off. And the rest of the movie is her as she tries to escape. The story was based on a Stephen King uh, short. No, it's a novel. Oh, it's a novel? Mm-hmm. Okay. I actually haven't read anything about the book this was based on. Yeah, I am I consider Not myself my a, a pretty big Stephen King fan, and I have actually never heard of the Gerald's Game novel. But Deep after cut. Deep cut, but after the movie, I, I'm kind of intrigued to read it, I must say. Well, that's where I might disagree a little bit. But let's get into that a little bit more. What do you guys think of uh, Gerald's game? Well, one big thing about it is it's focused just around uh, Carla Gugino's character, Jessie, mm-hmm. her name. Her just trying to figure out how the hell she's going to get out. We find out these are real handcuffs. Her husband, played by Bruce Greenwood, 
wanted to make sure he got the nice ones. The crappy ones just break if you pull on them too That's hard. That's right. Mm-hmm. And they are on a reinforced bedpost as well, which also, fun fact, that part of the bed was made out of the mirror from Oculus. Yeah, the headboard is uh, is a conversion of the mirror, so, which is good repurposing. Cool. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Always got to recycle. <laughs> and uh, the, a lot of the movie depends on the acting. Uh, also, we see, like we had in movies like Hush, which we did not talk about much. In Hush, the lead actress, she's deaf, but we see her mind or her thought process played out by uh, sort of like a second character of herself talking to her as she's trying to work things out. And in Gerald's game, she sees her manifestation of Gerald talking to her, taunting her as she's trying to get out, and herself also. There's also a dog that earlier in the movie uh, she saw outside of the house. And and give her some of that nice Kobe beef. $200 a portion, so... Yeah, so she gave the dog some food, and then later, after the, uh, after Gerald has collapsed, the dog breaks into the house Well, they, they leave the, they leave the front door open. Oh, yeah, that's right. When, uh, when he pulls her inside so they can go to the bedroom, uh, they accidentally leave the front door open so that's how the dog gets in but yeah then the dog comes in and starts snacking on uh on gerald's corpse right yes which adds more of a uh ticking time bomb suspense to it because soon enough the dog will eat enough of gerald before he wants fresher meat and so she's got to try and get out before the dog starts aiming i feel like on her. having dogs in survival horror movies like this is kind of a trope at this point yeah i mean you have like wolf dogs in uh frozen the 2010 one where they're stuck on a ski oh, lift God, right. you have dogs in the gray which is that liam neeson one where he's oh yeah wilderness I, I don't think it was done poorly in this movie. Don't get me wrong. No. I thought the dog was a good and, touch. They make a point because, Jesse, we find out that her childhood, there was something very traumatic that happened to her, which led her to be around people who are sort of scummy. We see through Bruce Greenwood's uh, the hallucination version of him that... There were a lot of reservations she had about his character and the way he would act in sometimes very sexually aggressive ways, and it all ties back right. into... Well, that's that's the thing. We learn why she's so put off by uh, by his his sex games, because when she was like 12 or something like that during a, a solar eclipse her dad like had him sit on her lap while he masturbated something like that right now i'm pretty sure that's what happened so, so. Uh, yeah and then later convinces her to not like tell anybody about it and like they make a point to say that like he never actually raped her or anything like that or never did anything after that but that it was still a traumatic enough experience understandably that she's got lots of hang-ups and i think that that's really the the thing that sets her off the most when uh after he's handcuffed her and he starts like calling himself daddy and that like really freaks her out yeah understandably 
I so, thought this, the the release of this movie was incredibly timely. I mean, with all the the pedophilia shit coming out lately. Yeah, no kidding. Like, I know they wrote and shot this movie before that all came to light, but the fact that it was released when it was... Yeah, I I feel like that's crazy. just coincidence yeah. more than anything yeah. else. But uh, yeah, that's that's uh, a, good, a really good point. And um, yeah, most of this movie, you know, is her uh, dealing with her hallucinations and trying to survive and figure out a way to escape. But she also at night continues to see the an apparition of this like tall deformed man in raggedy clothes with like this bag of bones and trinkets and uh there's a lot of trinkets in mike flanagan movies huh um her hallucination of gerald tells her that this man is is death is the personification of death and that the reason she keeps seeing him is because she's going to die chained to that bed because she's not going to be able to escape. Yeah, well, that's one of the big things. Uh, You know, after he dies and after the dog comes out to eat, she starts really hallucinating hard and seeing herself and Gerald, and they're all trying to talk to help her try to figure out what to do and kind of unpack the situation. Well, her hallucination hallucination of herself is the one we're trying to help her yeah, out. Trying yeah. to, she realized there's a cup of water. Because the reason why Bruce Greenwood has the heart attack in the first place is because he's taking Viagra. And so... Yeah, and he, he, just, takes, he takes more than one, right? I, I, I don't remember I how many so. he takes, but whatever. However <laughs> many he took, it, uh, it gives him that heart attack. But there's a cup of water he left... On the on like a little headboard above the bed, and so she's able to slide that down to her and drink it through like a straw she makes out of a tag from her dress. So yeah. they do those little moments where she yeah. has to become inventive to try and survive. But Bruce Greenwood's hallucination is there to mainly taunt her, yeah, and to sort of belittle her. He OD'd on Viagra. <laughs> yes, yeah, and, uh, yeah. I thought a lot of the survival elements were really clever. I thought the uh, the cup of water especially, you know, she first struggles to get it off of the headboard without tipping over and falling. And once she does, you know, she tries to pull it to her mouth and it's not far enough with uh, the handcuffs. Yeah. I thought that was a really clever twist. I No, I thought that was cool too and how we see her like pulling the tag off of her... Uh like her lingerie earlier in the movie and setting it up on the shelf. And then she has the idea to grab that and roll it up into a straw that she can use to drink the water. There's like those little things, these little touches. And granted, I don't know how much of that is actually in the the Stephen King book. I think all that stuff is, is really quite inventive. I will shamefully admit that I did fall asleep for a few minutes during this movie because oh I was because I was kind of drunk, not because it, I was bored. I just had a long day at work and I was tired and a little bit drunk, and I fell asleep around the middle, so I missed some of the stuff. But I came back to it for the end. <laughs> oh man! Should we go ahead and, and talk God. about the end? This movie, yes, great well- hour and twenty thirty minutes at the beginning and. One of the worst fucking endings I've seen in a while. Right. Well, so the way that she finally realizes uh, 
how she can escape from the handcuffs is after this is back in her childhood after her father's talked to her and told her not to tell anybody and apologized she's at dinner and her father is talking to her mom about how they had a good time while they were away and she breaks the glass of juice or milk or whatever she has and it causes her hand to bleed, which sparks in her mind the idea that if she can cut her hand on the glass, um, the water glass, that she can use that blood as a sort of lubricant to stick her hand out. And in what is a pretty gruesome That's moment. A very she, gruesome it's, scene. It's yeah. very graphic. It really is something that should be seen because it's really only like the only real gore in the entire movie like we know that like we see the dog eating uh gerald's corpse but it's sort of obscured by the edge of the bed so we only really hear it more than see it yeah and uh that no the 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 scene where she finally escapes is gruesome because in the act of pulling her hand out from the handcuff she basically like rips all the skin off of her hand like a glove yeah and that is just uh just gruesome when they first introduced that of her having to break the glass and like cut herself you know it gave me a lot of saw vibes yeah you know you have having to cut yourself out but somehow in execution it was more visceral and yes. disgusting than even saw was well yeah because i mean in saw when carrie elwes cuts off his foot you don't really see it too much but you see like her the skin of her hand being pulled up and the muscle and tendons underneath and it's really quite gruesome yeah. really good really well done but then once she finally manages to escape uh she sees the uh the moonlight man as he's called uh the the personification of death or whatever in the kitchen as she's leaving and she drops her wedding ring into his bag of trinkets and then yes we get to the extremely disappointing ending yeah, where she escapes and then it cuts to six months later something like yep. that and so the whole time with the moonlight man you have some great uh symbolism and you know play with metaphor with the moonlight man being the personification of death and moonlight being connected with you know the solar eclipse right and uh it's a really cool duality and the fact that she like leaves her ring with him kind of symbolizes that she's moved on right and that all felt really good and then they cut uh six months later and have to explain the moonlight man in detail in the fact that he was actually not a hallucination and that he was like a serial killer and grave robber slash necrophiliac who had been plaguing the town, which they do outright call Fairhope, which was jarring for me because I was not expecting that. that. And that he's been caught and he's going to jail. And the reason he didn't do anything to her is because he only kills and mutilates, like, men. It's uh, He's gay and it's some kind of, like, weird sex thing. Um, I thought he... he fucked both dead men and dead women but he only like mutilated the the, the guys yeah afterwards. something something like that um and yeah and then so the final scene is her like going to 
his trial or whatever and uh and she and, she busts into the middle of the trial as they're announcing the verdict, walks down the aisle yeah, loudly, and, just, and then like it's like hey, <laughs> just like interrupts it, and then she's like you don't or like you look so small or something like that, and then leaves and walks into the middle of the street. Yeah, and walks away in the middle of the street. Um, oh, it should be mentioned that the Moonlight Man is played by Karel Stryken, uh, who is the giant in Twin Peaks. Um, so yeah. that was that was nice, and his whole design and makeup is all very good, I think. And uh, and okay, so here's my thing with this, and I was talking to Eugene about this earlier today, as I was going to bed after watching this movie and thinking about it. I don't mind at all that the Moonlight Man was actually a real person, like a physical threat rather than just a hallucination. That in and of itself did not bother me. What bothered me is that they just tacked it on to the end. That's what pissed me off. It undercut him, it being him being real. I think it undercut the the power of the metaphor with death and I dis- moving on. I disagree because even though he was he was real, she thought she was hallucinating him. So he still represents what she thought he did. But the but it adds an added aspect that she was actually in physical danger from an external source as well. So that, that that's kind of bullshit because we had the dog too, and that was an external force that was an actual danger. I why suppose. tack on another one? And why give him shitty, well, not shitty, but like colored contacts if he was a real person well you know? right and i mean that blurs why give the... him spooky eyes well that well he only has spooky eyes when she falls asleep and she dreams that he's there whenever he's actually there he doesn't have the spooky eyes I, they still looked kind of spooky right well he's he's supposed to be deformed you know he's he's tall and he's got the fucked up head and hands and shit so the fact that he's real really doesn't bother me. It just feels to explain it the way they did just tacked on there at the end and then to have her go to the courtroom and confront him. That shit was all really stupid. If they had found if it. they had found a better way to incorporate him being real into it, I think I would have been okay with it. But it's just it felt like an afterthought. I wouldn't say that it hurts the movie too much because the whole like first hour and a half of the movie is good. It's genuinely good. It's just then that part at the end that feels like tacked on garbage. So like, I feel like I watch this movie again and get enjoyment out of it. But that was uh, a very frustrating way to end an otherwise very good movie, I think. Oh, man. Did not stick the landing at all. No. Honestly, I think this is one of those cases where the last 10 minutes, for me, ruins a lot of the power of the rest of the movie. I think the ending undercut a lot of what the movie was trying to do and cheapened it. They they play with the Moonlight Man very secondary to the, the main action of the story and right. the majority of the movie... And then suddenly they have to explain it all away right. as kind of the central villain, 
when that's not the central yes. you know antagonist I, of the movie and that totally cheapens the rest of it i agree i even would not have had so much of a problem with it if they still had him being like caught at the end but if she had just been like looking through a newspaper or something and saw his picture and then she had her realization herself that he was actually there and then maybe leave some of his motivations and stuff a bit more ambiguous and then just wrap it up in a different way to have them just like through voiceover narration to to explain him and who he is and what he was doing and then have her go to his trial at the end like he's the reason for everything that happened like she has to confront him at the trial in order to be free of this traumatic experience that shit was dumb because that doesn't make any sense yeah it was really dumb and the thing is you know they they play with the Moonlight Man originally in the movie in a really interesting way, and they argue, you know, if you die alone, how do you know what you see, right. you know, before you die? Because if they're alone, you can't give that information to someone else. Right, it's like a whole if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it kind of thing. Yeah, so they they play with the Moonlight Man in that way, in that, like... They they give the idea of people dying alone often die of fear, of fright, because they see an apparition like the Moonlight Man, right. who's supposed to be, you know, a stand-in for death. And if they would have played that up a little bit more, I think, that would have been a little bit more effective if they yeah. would have implied that, you know... Other people die of fright. But even that is over-explaining, in my opinion. They they didn't need to put anything in here, honestly. No, they, they, that, that is the big problem with it, is that they over-explain it at the end and in, in a way that feels like an afterthought. And that's really the biggest problem with it. Otherwise, I still think it's a, a a pretty a pretty good movie overall. Like I I think the acting is really good across the board. Uh, Carla Gugino and uh, Bruce Greenwood both do a really good job, and the interplay between them. And also, I really like how aside from like the flashbacks and the very end, it all you know it's contained to just like the bedroom. Yeah, yeah. The, the central location, like which is something in films that I I all always really like if it's done well yeah um, single location movies are usually really really good if they're done well yeah i think you know you could even say that if when watching this movie after the scene where she puts her she escapes and she puts her wedding ring in the moonlight man's bag of bones and trinkets just roll credits right there solid movie yeah very, honestly very once she crashes the car and the the, mm-hmm. the lights on the neighbor's house turn on, just turn off the movie. Yeah. You don't have to go on from there. Because all you get after that is the shitty explanation of the Moonlight Man, and then you get a heavy-handed, oh, I started a foundation for kids that were touched. Yeah. yeah. And I tell which my also story feels every tacked day. On. Yeah, which also felt really yeah. tacked on. And because you, you get all the closure you need from the the wedding ring being dropped in the mm-hmm. box and her her escape you get a lot of that through yeah. the story itself and you don't need an explanation well yeah exactly the, her putting the ring into the bag 
is really all the closure we need. It's like she has, through this traumatic experience, been able to come to terms with her father's abuse and her true feelings about her husband, you know, and why their marriage was deteriorating prior to this. And that's really like, that's, that's the moment when she puts it in there. Like that's the closure. She's moved on. She has come out of this alive and has become a a stronger person through it. If they just rolled credits after that, that would have been okay. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the ending where it really falls apart. And I would I would still definitely recommend this movie because I do think it's a good movie. Do you I, think that was a Netflix thing, the ending, or a Stephen I don't know. King thing? I I don't know. I can't say. I I would say that it's probably a Stephen King thing, but knowing Stephen King, it's probably handled way better in the mm. book. There's some Stephen King uh, books where he just does not stick the landing. Yes, so I, but I wouldn't be too surprised. I don't know. Maybe I'll read it and find out. But I think it's uh, significant to note that this is the third good Stephen King adaptation to come out this year, this fall actually. It nineteen twenty two, and and this, and then one bad one, The Dark Tower, which (laughs) I finally saw. And was fucking awful. Insultingly surprise, bad. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. I knew it would be. But yeah. after I finished the series, the book series, I was like, well, I, I have to watch it. I heard that they reshot like 90% of that movie. <sighs> it's, it's, it's an insulting oversimplification of a really fantastic series of books. Uh, but I'm not, not going to get into that. <laughs> um, should we go ahead and rate this and yes. then move on to our game? Yep. Yes, let's do it. Um, I'll start this one. Uh, no need to rehash what I said. Uh, I feel like I expressed myself pretty clearly. I'm going to give this a solid four out of five. The ending aside, the rest of it was, uh, something I was on board with. So, um, Eugene. Yeah. Same for me, honestly, four out of five. I think that Carly Gugino does a great job, Bruce Greenwood. And besides those last five, 10 minutes that everything else is, Really solid and should be seen. So check it out. Everyone has access to Netflix these days. You gotta fucking ask your ask your parents, ask your friends. Watch it. Yeah. Watch it. This is one of those cases where I, normally I would agree with you guys four out of five, but because they t- fucked up the landing and just whiffed the ending so badly, I have to knock at least half a star off. So I'm gonna go with three and a half. Um, still worth checking out. Still a lot of good stuff. The majority of the movie is really great. That ending, though, awful. One of the worst horror endings I've seen in a long time. Honestly, like we said before, just turn the movie off, you know, right when they, they cut to black um, and kind of jump forward in time. Yeah. All of that, it's garbage. Yeah, just stop watching yeah. there, really. You'll have um, a much better movie yeah. experience, I think. Yeah, so I'm going to go three and a half out of five. All right, so that gives us an average of 3.8 out of five pods. Still good. Yeah, I think uh, Mike Flanagan is definitely a director to keep an eye out for in the future. He's not perfect, 
uh, but he definitely shows a lot of promise. And when he's good, he's good. Shout out Mike Flanagan. Shout out Fairhope, Alabama. Roll Tide. <laughs> yeah, of uh, contemporary horror directors, he's definitely a name that should be checked out. I think he's kind of still underrated in terms I agree. of I agree. household name. Uh, not someone who's on everyone's radar quite yet, um, but definitely a director worth checking out and a director, contemporary director in terms of horror that has his own unique style. Yeah, I think so. I think his style is really uh, making itself apparent. You know, this is what, his sixth film, I think? And uh, it's starting to get to a point where, like, I can watch it and I can watch his stuff and recognize the hallmarks of his directing style. And... Honestly, as good of a director as he is, I would say he's a better editor. So as long as he continues to edit his movies and grow as a director, you know, I think uh, he's really starting to find his swing. And I think we can expect some really great horror movies out of him in the future. I hope so, at least. Yeah, the way uh, Flanagan, you know, externalizes the internal struggles of all the characters has become kind of signature in his movies. And really is a unique hallmark of a lot of them. You know, you don't really see that done quite as well in any other horror movie or any other movie, period. The way he does it is very unique and worth checking out for that alone. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Ben, so do you want to explain our game for this episode? Absolutely. So, for the game we have this week, uh, I have pulled some trivia from... All of Mike Flanagan's movies, not just the ones we've seen. And uh, I'll shout out a random piece of trivia, and you have to tell me what movie it's from. All right. So that's all we're doing is just naming the movie that the trivia corresponds to. Yep. Okay. And you guys have to guess. All right. Cool, 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 cool. What feature uh, had the first appearance of the Oculus Mirror in it? I mean, I want to say Absentia. I haven't seen any of his other, like, student films, so... You said what feature? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so that's Absentia onward. Uh, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to say Absentia. Yeah, no, I said Absentia. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, that, it's, it has a little cameo uh, early on. I actually noticed um, that in the in the shrink's office, right? Yeah, on the, yeah. Hanging on the wall Very while they're cool. talking yeah. is... Yeah, it's yeah. the it's the mirror from the short film, obviously not from the feature. Um... This movie uh, was filmed in 18 days. Huh. Um, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to say Hush, because I know that that one is a pretty small... Uh, I'm small also going to say Hush. Oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> well, it, it's Hush. We're both so good. Um, oh. oh, man. Uh, this film had virtually no soundtrack. Well, I know it's not Oculus because I mentioned the music in that. I know it's not Absentia because it had that really obnoxious, like, two tone theme throughout the entire thing. Yeah, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Gerald's game. I'm I'm gonna say before I well, yeah, I'm gonna say before I wake. It was Gerald's game. Oh, boom! No. Realest guy in the room. So I have one more and then a little bonus. Okay. Um, I have a feeling that you might 
both get both of these, so we'll see. Um, so in this movie, most of the pictures inside of the house that was shot uh, had pictures uh, of water or reflections of water uh, within the picture frames. Water? Yeah. Hmm. I actually don't know this one. Um, I, Gerald's game, I guess, since it's right on Mobile Bay. No oh, shit. I'm, I'm going to say the Ouija movie. It was Oculus. All of the, the pictures have, uh, in the picture frames <sighs> have reflections. Uh, that was, see, like that's, that. reflection is what made me think of Oculus, but then also because Gerald's game is set on the water, I thought, oh, well, maybe water, maybe yeah. Gerald's <laughs> game. All right, shit, so... We both did bad at that one, Eugene. Yes, we did. All right, okay, so what's the so last one? I, I'll give Eugene a chance to come back for this one. Okay. Uh, so what three movies did Mike Flanagan direct in 2016? In 2016? Is this uh, just for Eugene, or am I answering this too? Well, the thing is, if one of you answers, that kind of answers it. For okay, me. yeah, all right. All right. Uh, I'm going to say... Hush, Ouija, and Before I Wake? Correct. Hey. Okay, so... So how are we going to break this tie? Yeah, this is a tie. Um, okay. Uh, what was the budget for Absentia? Whoever the, gets closest will win. The budget? Yeah. Oh, shit. Okay. Um, I'm gonna say... I'm going to say, like, $300,000. Eugene? Uh, I'm going to go much lower than that. I think for Absentia, it was probably, like, twenty-five grand, thirty grand. Oh, wow. Yeah, you are going way lower yeah. than that. So I mean... It was actually seventy grand. Fuck! I went oh, way wow. over. Woo. Oh, Eugene my God. Eugene turned it around in, right. the, in the last minute. Fuck, All right. fuck, Good fuck, shit. All right. Okay, yeah, that's so a good one. next week, we are... Uh, doing a er, an early Peter Jackson P-Jax. retrospective, so we're which I'm very excited watching about. Dead Alive. Uh, we are watching The Frighteners, and the third movie we're watching, Eugene. Well, I'm going to be choosing Bad Taste. I have not seen that movie, and so I think it would be a good one to talk about. All right, I could get down with that too. I have seen Bad Taste, but I did fall asleep partway through it, so it'll be good to see it again. Solid lineup. I Solid think. lineup. Yeah, I'm excited. This will be. A, I think this will be a good episode. Um, all right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. Um, thank you so much for listening, as always. Um, we've pretty well got our show map laid out for the rest of 2017, but we have yet to start setting up things for 2018. Uh, we'd love to hear from some of the listeners. So, uh, tweet at us or, uh, post on our Facebook page, pod people pod for both of those. Let us know some, uh, some themes that you might like to see in 2018 or, uh, even specific movies that you like to see or directors and uh yeah we'd we'd love to uh to get some community involvement in that um you can follow us on letterboxd as well for our ratings of these movies pod people podcast on letterboxd 
The show is produced by Ben Sheets, who also does our entrance music. Uh, entrance music, like we're fucking wrestling. <laughs> I watch too much wrestling. The show is edited by yours truly. You can catch us on any of your favorite podcast resources. If you like the show, leave us a uh, rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It'd be really great so we can get some more exposure and uh, turn some people on to some horror movies. Do you guys have anything else you'd like to plug before we sign out? Not I. No. Nope. All right. Well, I am Matisse Van Rossum. I'm Ben Sheets. I'm Eugene Lundin. And uh, I guess we're going to have to get Eugene back to the hospital to get his uh, his hook wounds taken care of. So yeah, uh, is, we'll, uh, is there pus? Is there pus? Yes, you have been leaking a lot. I'm going to have to clean the floor thoroughly after this. So, I lost uh, my sight a little while ago. So I'm not surprised. All right, yes, we'll have to close it all off. Everybody have a good night. Thank you for listening. Catch us again next time. Bye. Goodbye.